to make a lot of money. Uh, he fell off the map and then came back when he was, I don't know, uh, early twenties and mm. he, he had a production crew follow him around and show like, I'm going to make money this way. I'm, I'm going to have like invisible ink on my forehead and it won't show up until I start sweating. This mm. is how I, I bilk the little old ladies for their money. And you could see the, the process of how all this was done. And it, it's, it's quite, you know, even the, the behind the scenes, uh, footage with him and the, the other pastors, which he's going to go to their church to speak that night. And they're, mm. they're talking about how they'll divvy everything up. And it's just really sad. I mean, he used this as an expose, but as a one time only, here's Marjo. And it, it's a really great movie to watch, but it, it's sad and disturbing. Mm. Yeah. I mean, and, and this kind of stuff always is. I mean, uh, it's, um, it can go either way as well. So there's books like um, The Psychic Mafia, uh, which is a really great book. It's a it's an expose from someone, again, on the inside uh, talking about the stuff that they would do. And, you know, they'd break into – he said he would break into someone's house or when he knew they weren't in, he would go into the house and he'd take their watch or something like that. And then during the readings, he would produce this watch from nowhere like it was a spirit thing. And this person would just be, you know, absolutely kind of mystified by it. And it's, he just lifted it from them. And, yeah, some quite remarkable things that can be done. But it, even then, you don't even need that level of uh Remarkable. Of That's robbery. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, remarkable fuck? that people would buy it, you know. Remarkable that, <laughs> remarkable that they would have the, the, the absolute balls to do it. And it, the, the contempt as well. The, the, the absolute contempt that uh, that these kind of um, uh, mediums, whether it's in a spiritualist church or whether it's in a, a, a psychic stage show, the absolute content they have for the audience is unbelievable. And I saw this um, with, uh, there's a, a psychic in the UK by the name of Sally Morgan, who we took a look at um, oh, yeah. a little while ago. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we issued her a, a challenge to see whether she would prove that she was genuine or not, because there was a, a point where she was uh, accused uh, of wearing an earpiece. And, mm-hmm. uh, I, I say she was accused of doing so. I mean, I know that, uh, the newspaper that reported it recently settled out of court because they couldn't prove she was wearing an earpiece for, for one mm-hmm. reason or the, they couldn't prove that. Of course, that gets them reported as newspaper forced to pay because they, you know, where they were wrong when mm-hmm. they just couldn't prove it. And, you know, the case was kind of settled out of court. Um, so as part of all of uh, looking into that, um, I went along to see her show a couple of times, and uh, a couple of the uh, people here in the UK did. Simon Singh did many times. Paul Zenon did. And uh, some of the stuff that Sally Morgan does, um, whether you believe she knows she's doing it or whether you believe she's doing it without realizing, there's a lot of stuff in there that's quite odd. So uh, when you go in, you, the show starts at half seven. We don't get let into the actual theater part till eight. So you mill around the kind of lobby of the theater for half an hour having a drink. And in there, there's this massive glass ball, massive, massive, like a goldfish ball, but huge. Um, and next to it, there's a little piece of paper called Sally's Love Letters. And on that, you're encouraged to write down the name of the person that you want to contact and write down the question you want to ask them. And those all go in the glass bowl. And then those all go directly onto the stage. And by directly on the stage, I mean via the backstage, where <laughs> it could be argued that the ball looks a lot less full by the time it gets on stage. And then in the 20 minutes or the 15 minutes that Sally has to get on stage, if I was going to cheat, I'd be using some of the ones that I might have taken out of that ball to just memorize a couple of things. Because then you can get on stage and do the, the magician's convincer of, oh, later on, I'm going to take a look at these love letters, but I haven't, I haven't got time to do that yet. I'm going to do these other readings that are just coming through so well to me, coming through so, all the way through the show. She's saying... And I haven't even got your love letters yet. And it's a magician's <laughs> convincer, isn't it? It's the, you've had the envelope in your hands and there's no way I could have got into that envelope. There's no way I could have cheated. You've had that in your possession. It's the, the you know, it's a, it's a, 
an overt fraud doing it, if I was an overt fraud doing it, I would say that that, that is how I would convince you that I hadn't taken a handful of uh, of letters out of that, that glass bowl. And um, like you said, she had a half hour, and, and I'm quite certain she has a fairly large entourage that follows her around. They could be milling out there also talking with people. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that that was one thing I was very, very acutely aware of, and I was actually trying to seed uh, bullshit stories. I went there, and, and cause I, I'd like to go in places a little bit undercover and try and sort of seed kind of things. And I don't know how much that was picked up on, but I, I know that when we went to see her, it was after the whole sort of scandal kind of thing was in the papers. So I think she was very, very cautious. Um, but even mm-hmm. then, being cautious... Uh, uh, you know, whether, whether you believe she's a cheat or not. And I, I, I have my own opinions, but I, I'd rather not voice them. Um, because for various reasons, like she just sued the Daily Mail. Um, <laughs> but even, uh, even, you know, looking at it, the, the, the stuff that she was doing, done, even if you believe she's genuine is still a bit iffy. So her introductory video was, was highlights of her tour. I and mean, on one of them, she was uh, saying she got, she gets possessed by the spirit. So she starts talking their voice. And so, actually, when I saw her on stage, at one point, she was possessed by the spirit of a girl who drowned, who was five years old. Ooh. And on stage, she was saying to the mother in the audience, Mammy, Mammy, I can't breathe, Mammy. Mammy, I can't breathe. Uh, oh, hell no. Like, Holy mm. fuck, that is crazy. Now, even if you genuinely are getting those messages through, even if you're genuinely doing that, you're going to have some human compassion to couch that neater than doing an impression of their dead five-year-old girl. You know, there, there's no excuse for that. You, you, you know, you are, you are in control of yourself. You're just doing it on purpose. And she did it on her introductory video. She had this kind of thing where she was going, oh, I've got this lady in the afterlife. I've got this lady. And she keeps saying to me, little Baileys. Yeah, little Baileys. It's your mum, is it? Yeah, she keeps saying, little Baileys. And you get the impression that she's talking about how her mum likes a, a shot, a, a glass of Baileys, you know, the, the liqueur. Little mm-hmm. Baileys. Oh, she liked to drink, did she? Little Baileys. And the woman in the audience says, oh, no, she didn't like to drink. Oh, <laughs> well, she keeps saying, little Baileys. And she went, yeah, Baileys, my son who died. <laughs> oh, oh, so she's saying, little Bailey, little Bailey. Oh, I didn't even realize. Oh, God, I didn't even realize that's what she was saying. It's like, fuck off. You know, mm. you got that. In my opinion, I believe you could have got that from one of your love letters, you know, to my mum. Question, is Bailey with you? You know, and then you've played that for laughs. That's one way of interpreting it. And even if you didn't get it that way, then you've really, you've got, you've got to go some to, to, to accidentally be that offensive. You know, you, you know that that's good. I think she played it for laughs. Oh, uh, fuck I off. That's, that's pretty nasty. And that then is the, horrible. The, te- the techniques that are, that are used by these people, I, I find them utterly fascinating. So I, in the show that I saw Sally doing, she would say, uh, you know, getting, just getting a name, you know, like getting a name, Rachel. Does anyone know Rachel? Something like that. You know, your standard kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it would come to someone and be like, okay, now could you, could you stand up so everyone can see you? Okay. Now I know this can be a bit hard and sometimes the energy needs a little bit of spot. Is there anybody here with you? Is that person to your left with you and the person to your right? Are they your friends? Yeah. Great. Well, could they stand up as well and just hold on to you for support? Now, um, do, do, why am I hearing about a dog? Who's got the Alsatian? Do you have the Alsatian? No. How about your friend to the left? Do you have an Alsatian? No. Your friend to the right? Oh, you've got the Alsatian. Oh, okay. Well, this reading must be for you. And then she goes, and she's now reading for three people. And then when that starts, when she's now, you know, trebling her chances of getting a hit, when that starts to run dry, and she says, and, and there's a blue car, isn't there? You haven't got, you haven't got a blue car? You haven't got a blue car? Who here has the blue car? Oh, you over there. Okay. This might be a reading for you. If you stand up, you three stay standing. I'm going to come to you for a second, but do you have anybody here with you? Because sometimes the spirits need a bit of help coming through. Do you have more? Could you two either side of you stand up? She's now scattergunning six people. When you've got six people, <laughs> wow. you can say what the fuck you like. One of those six people are going to, going to feel it. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's just amazing. 
this is, this is why I, I'd urge Ooh. listeners, if they have the opportunity to go and see a psychic show, do it. Because it's not what you, it's worse than you see on television. Because on television, when you see the John Edwards show and it's half an mm. hour long, that was a two hour, three hour show cut down to half an hour. And there's a very good reason why the audience members are forced to sign non-disclosures. You know, you're not allowed to talk about it. You're not allowed to, to, to write about it. That's part of the, the confidentiality agreement for, for going along. My um, goodness. Does he really cut, do that? I, I believe, I, I believe, I, I could be wrong. Wow. I believe seeing, I saw that somewhere, but, uh, as, when you're talking mm. about psychics, uh, d- don't quote me on that. I am perfectly uh, capable of being wrong, so don't sue me on that either. Uh, it's a very litig- <laughs> it's a very difficult place for a skeptic sometimes here in the UK because we have quite uh, libel laws that uh, that do require an awful lot of uh, moving around, maneuvering around. And I'd hate to libel anybody. You know, I, I speak only of what I uh, what I believe. Um, but there's the remarkable thing. I, I, I was once um, asked by the BBC to go undercover at a, uh, a psychics uh, show guy by the name of Stephen Holbrook. And again, another nasty piece of work. I tend to come across. Uh, you tend to get very excited by the ones that you have a suspicion, might not believe it. Um, and it's only a suspicion you can't prove it, but you get excited by those ones. The ones who genuinely believe it are just a little bit kind of sad a little bit. You kind of want to hug them and go, oh, you think the world's magic. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's kind of adorable, but in a, in a sort of a heartbreaking way. But the ones who believe, who, who know what they're doing are you spec know what they're doing those are the ones that you really kind of get excited about seeing and i saw this stephen holbrook guy and he had this whole patter that when the spirits are taking him his hand kind of seizes up so he had this kind of uh mock kind of claw of a hand going on and then it was fine when he wasn't possessed by the spirits but as soon as he was making readings he would, his hand would instinctively go into this claw which is a very convincing looking uh physical thing if you can keep it up for the full hour and occasionally he could <laughs> but some other mm. times his hand would kind of like forget that it was meant to be doing that it's like, right so i'm paying attention and you just kind of let that one slip um <laughs> but what he did is he found out very early on in the, the second half of his show that the woman on the front uh two rows back uh, had had uh, a miscarriage or I think it was a cot death in fact her son had died uh, mm. died in the cot and because she was very emotional and you would be this poor woman had, had suffered horrendously um, everything that he couldn't land anywhere else he knew that if he pushed hard enough she'd take so he's got the dog. No, no one's here has got the dog. What about you? Did you, were you going to buy your son a dog? Yeah, we were thinking of getting a puppy. Oh, well, he's saying he would have, he would have really loved the dog. Mm. And in that audience of maybe 50 people, um, there were, he, he tried to sell miscarriages to five or six different women. Mm. You know, it was a, I mean, it was a mainly female audience, but still, like, and you know what, you know, when there's someone, there's a baby who's meant to be in this world and then doesn't come into this world. Do you know what I mean? They're, they're, they're on, they're here and then they're not here. Does that make sense to you? And it could be a miscarriage. It could be a cop death. And when a woman goes, uh, no. Oh, so you didn't have any, you was never a pregnancy or anything? No, I've never been pregnant. Well, you were pregnant, but you lost it before you knew about it. Oh, okay. That's a thing now. That's fine. Is it? That's perfectly fine to say to people. Yeah, remarkable, wow. human, remarkable man. And again, I, I don't think he was genuinely contacting the dead um, and, and getting insights about this world from the dead. And there's a good reason that I, why I think that, because I went over to talk to someone in his team at halftime, just have a little bit of a chat and see what I could find out. And he walked over and started talking to me. And we had a good 20 minutes or 15 minutes worth of chat, uh, which wow. was being recorded on my iPhone for the BBC at the time. And if he was really getting information from the dead, I think they would have given him a heads up on that one. Just uh, don't, don't go and talk <laughs> to that guy. He has been sent to, uh, to film me or to record you uh-huh. <laughs> wow oh shit <laughs> so uh is is there any uh I, I know about simon saying getting sued over libel laws uh is there any looks like there's gonna be some reform going on uh yeah i believe there is something going through i, mean, I must admit it's something i'm totally uh totally hot on but uh um hmm. i believe there is some 
some work being done to make a more kind of robust uh, public interest defence. Because obviously, what what if you have a public interest defence that I genuinely believe this thing here is in the good of the people to know, uh, right. then you can kind of get a lot of stuff behind it. I believe there's also something else about um, uh, you can't sue for libel uh, around stuff that's published in academic papers or peer-reviewed papers. So you can't oh, like excellent. stifle science. Because I, I believe that that was something that was a, a very big problem. There were there was a, uh, a specialist who I think been critiquing a particular heart medicine uh, or a heart uh, an, an apparatus to, to help with um, uh, problems with the heart and I, and I believe mm-hmm. uh, he was going to be sued by the manufacturers of that uh, that drug or, uh, or, or apparatus so I know that uh, that kind of thing should now be harder to happen but I must admit I'm not a, a legal expert and I, I frequently uh, end up in near hot water <laughs> mm-hmm. lukewarm water through my uh, both enthusiasm and inability to grasp the libel laws comprehensively I, I once had uh, an altercation with a, a journalist from the Daily Express uh, because one of the things that I like to do as part of the part the stuff I do is get this is to take a look at what's in the newspapers and see how much of that is actually genuine, how much of it is kind of placed there by companies, just press releases that get copy and pasted directly. And there's a huge, huge amount of that. And I, I periodically will, will write a blog where I'll put up three stories a day every day for like three months solidly demonstrating that there's just so much of this stuff. And there was one in the, um, in the Daily Express, which was uh, the, it was the world's first anti-nagging medicine is how they put it. Uh, it was a cure for hen-pecked husbands. It was uh, the, 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 the call to their, uh, the their answer to their prayers. And the whole story was, when you read it, it was all kind of about, it, it, he tried to have a tokenistic spin towards it being, it works on wives too. Uh, sorry, it works on uh, husbands too, rather. But the whole thing was really quite anti, uh, anti-wives. It was quite mm-hmm. uh, misogynistic, really quite nasty kind of language in there about hectoring women and nagging women and nightmare women and hen-pecked husbands and all this kind of stuff. And it had a lovely line in there as well about... Um, it even boosts your sex life by boosting libido afterwards. So it's kind of this one spray <laughs> will leave your wife horny and servile for 24 hours. You know, it was that kind of thing. And apparently, uh, all you had to do to keep her happy was spray onto her tongue uh, once a day. Uh, the, the the spray, not uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> 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 but this whole thing, it was it was a homeopathic spray in the end. And I, I wrote about it, and I said of the journalist at the time um, that it's it's quite nasty that he wrote this. But then again, I suspect he contributed barely a word to it. And then I kind of put that blog up and then I got a comment from that journalist saying, you said I haven't written this article. Uh, can you substantiate that claim? Because I will sue. Oh, right. <laughs> I was thinking, Jesus Christ, I, I, I don't have the patience or the pockets of Simon saying, I can't, I can't afford a libel case. I, you know, I have to work for a living. I can't do this. Uh, this is ridiculous. Um, so in the end, what I had to do is get in contact with the makers of the, uh, the herbal remedy, the homeopathic remedy, this, uh, this thing and pretend to be a prospective buyer <laughs> and just kind of, uh, keep them going long enough to say that, uh, well, I was, I was really interested in the story that I read in the experts. Could you send me the press release that you sent out for that? And, I, and I'll get all the information <laughs> I need. I'll get back in touch when I'm uh, really interested. And he sent me it, and it was exactly the same. So I was able to go back to, uh, <laughs> to this journalist in the uh, comments and say, uh, well, actually, I've got the press release, and it does, I mean, it, it, it does, it is almost exactly the same. And, but to be honest, I mean, why would you want to take credit? I was doing you a service by saying you didn't write this, because mm-hmm. it's nasty, it's misogynistic, it's, it's dumb. Um, and I was saying it was good that you didn't write it. I was saying it was, it was someone else. But if you do want to take credit for it, in the first line, you say it's the world's first anti-nagging medicine, and because it's a homeopathic remedy, you can't call it medicine. To call it medicine would be technically you practicing medicine without a license. That's an illegal claim you've made, and if you want to sue me, I will get someone to be in touch with you as well. Uh, he never came back to me, so <laughs> luckily. But I thought, I can't always get out of hot water that way. I, I, got, I did the same thing with a, a psychic, actually, a, a guy called Joe Power, who I had a long, long-running <laughs> altercation with. Um, and I think when I first wrote about him, I said, so I, I think I implied that he was a fraud. 
And I think I implied that by saying uh, he is a fraud, uh, which is probably <laughs> the wrong terminology to use when you can't prove that he's a fraud. And then I had this kind of wonderful moment where I was just looking to his background, desperately trying to figure out uh, what I'd do in case he got in contact. And I found that he went down, uh, he went to prison for a couple of years for fraud. So, oh, Christ, I, I've accidentally made a statement of pure fact. It's fine. It's probably <laughs> fine. <laughs> oh, boy. So you, uh, you just brought it up, but didn't really, uh, talk about it. Uh, how you would, uh, find an article or read it, read about it and find out that it's actually a press release. Uh, you, yeah. You have so a, this is, tell, tell us about it. Yeah, so this is a kind of a, a project I started a couple of years ago, and I think I kind of got a bit obsessed about it. And I, I think I still am, really, because in my normal day job, I kind of work in, a, or I, I used to, <laughs> up until yesterday, I uh, used to work in kind of marketing communications, that kind of stuff. So I'd come across press release from time to time, and they can have their use, but but the dominance of uh, press releases in the, the, the certainly UK press, but increasingly in the international press, is unbelievable. The amount of stuff that gets published that has never seen the light of a uh, light of day in journalism has never never had the hand of a journalism touch it you wouldn't believe so um i know there was a study in 2008 from cardiff university by uh, dr andrew williams et al and uh, it looked at the top five newspapers in the uk uh, over a fortnight and tracked back where every one of those stories came from and they found that in that fortnight th- uh, it was 40 percent of the stories uh were taken directly from press releases so verbatim not a single word was changed they just copy and paste it in and i believe it was a further 30 percent it could be slightly more than that uh was largely taken from press releases so they kind of changed a few words around and added their own quotes but again that the, the, the narrative was being led by the company who put that press release in the newswire at the time so it's a huge huge amount i think it, in, in the end i forget the number exactly but it totaled 80 percent of newspapers the top quality newspapers their articles come directly from uh, press release sources or from press release placed into the newswire and uh, this for me i thought was a staggering amount and not many not many people realize this so what i tend to do and i went through a, a period where i would do three of these a day is read the the uh websites of every one of the major newspapers in the country and just highlight this one here this story here I've managed to find the press release for it over here. And there's a couple of ways you can do that. And one of the most reliable one is, uh, is a, a rule. Um, it's called the fourth paragraph law, uh, which is if you see a company name in around about the fourth paragraph of an article, there's a very, very high uh, percentage chance that they're the ones who paid for it. Uh, and that, that's an intro, it's a weird law. Um, per, first of all, it's a weird law because I can't find out who invented that and it might be me. Because <laughs> I think I read that somewhere and then I start to try to kind of Google it and find where that was so I can actually, you know, give this person the, the credit they deserve. But every time I Googled it, I, I can't find anyone referring to it. Uh, and then when I did find someone, I saw this really interesting blog explaining exactly the fourth paragraph law. And at the very bottom it said, uh, and if you need more information about this, uh, check out Michael Marshall who came <laughs> up with it. I was like, oh, for fuck's sake, I don't think I did, but maybe I did. I don't know. Maybe it was like a Tyler Durden moment that I came up with it at, at night when I'd uh, passed out or something. I don't quite know. Um, <laughs> but it, it kind of, it sounds like an arbitrary distinction this kind of fourth paragraph thing but it it makes te- it does make perfect sense because if you go back to the days when newspapers were cut and paste when it was a pair of scissors and a pasteboard you know it was a paste uh, a paste brush um if you were the journalist who'd been given the main story in that page and you've written you know 400 500 600 words and then suddenly a really important story happened you had to be able to bump your story uh to a little sidebar and maybe cut 200 words out of it so if you've written your story like most people would, which would be kind of chron- chronological, um, it's really hard. You have to go back and re-edit everything. But you'll notice that newspapers write um, by a ranked order of importance.
importance. So the most mm-hmm. important details go in the first paragraph, and then the next most important go in the second. Then you have a quote, and by the you know by the time you get to the bottom of the story, all that stuff could just be killed. It's very easy, uh, and so that's kind of how how you uh, how the stories would get moved from the main to a, a sidebar. So if you're trying to get your company name in a newspaper. You don't want to put it in the first line because it'll be really obvious then that you're the one who's uh, trying to advertise yourself. But if you put it too low down, it's not going to survive the cut. So around about the fourth paragraph is a, a very useful place for it. So if you do see a company in the fourth paragraph, you'll normally find that that's uh, they're the guys who pay for that story in there and how this is. It just looks like a new story, but it's actually basically just advertising. Hmm. And that's where uh, people want, want to look into uh, what's called journalism. Yeah, yeah. So the journalism is a really kind of, I think it's a fascinating, uh, a fascinating problem in the news. So it's this idea that uh, rather than doing actual journalism, you just get a press release that's sent to you, you copy it, and then you paste it in, and you kind of put your name to the top of it, but nothing more than that. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's a really fascinating kind of problem for because I, I don't know who's to blame for it. Um, because you can kind of say, okay, well, it's the journalist's fault. They shouldn't be so lazy. They should actually do their, their job properly. Um, but then again, when you look at what's happening with journalism uh, over the last kind of 20 years, say 30 years, uh, as kind of the owners of newspapers have gone from being your captains of industry, citizen king, head of head of kind of uh, people who are looking for the, the the power of owning a newspaper rather than the profit. You know, people who are looking for, for the kudos rather than the kind of cash at the end of it. Mm-hmm. They're just looking to say, I'm a newspaper man, I'm an important person. And it, they used to be owned by people like that. And now they're owned by your Murdochs, your Robert Maxwells, your um, mm-hmm. people of that ilk, your Richard Desmonds. Um, and because those people are business people who now own newspapers, the first thing they do is try and cut costs by sacking journalists and having the people who are left do more stuff every day. So I think it was, again, the same study at uh, Cardiff University found that journalists today write something like three times uh, as much as many stories per day as they would have done 20, 30 years ago. And if wow. you're doing that amount of work and you're not having any more hours in the day, then you're going to have to do some shortcuts somewhere. And that's where you end up sort of tied to your desk all the day. You know, you don't find your own stories. You don't phone to check facts. Um, and you just kind of paste stuff in. So I think the journalists are kind of tied in. That, that, that journalism these days in certain newspapers or for many newspapers, a big part of that is just regurgitating what you're given. And mm-hmm. I don't know who to blame for that. It's not the, the journalist's fault necessarily, because if they took a stand, they probably wouldn't still be journalists at that newspaper. It's not the business owner's fault because they don't really, they're just trying to make money. They're, they're in business. They're not, you know, passionate about newspapers necessarily. Um, and while people like Rupert Murdoch might have a huge amount of, uh, ideological control, and he certainly does, it's certainly his business sense, I think, which fucks the newspapers way, way more than his ideologies. Um, I think they're, I think they're way more interested in entertainment than they are in, in news. It's, it's easier. It's, it's, it's cheaper. It's faster. It's easier. It's easier to mm-hmm. write about the simple stuff that you don't have to really think about because oh, if sure. you're a, a journalist sells. writing, yeah, exactly. And you know, if you're a journalist who has to write six, seven stories a day and it, at the Daily Mail, for example, that, that's the kind of magnitude you're looking at. Six or seven stories a day. I've seen up to nine stories a day from the same journalist. Wow. Um, how do you do that in a, in a nine hour day with uh, producing anything of any quality? I just don't, I don't think mm. you can. So it kind of it races to the bottom through this kind of look for profit. Yeah. And at the same time, you can't. You, I don't think you can blame the press uh, officers or press agencies necessarily. You can yeah, some of them. I mean, they could be doing a lot better. But their job is just to get stuff in the newspapers. It's not to think about the social responsibility of what they're writing, or it, it certainly should be, but often isn't. So yeah, I'm never quite sure who who to blame. Really, it's like everyone is turning their cog of the machine the correct way, but then the whole machine is driving backwards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was a story I was I was researching a while back uh, for the podcast that. There was two versions of the story, one that was found in the more reputable sources, and this is a story out of out of Britain. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's the BBC version that was copied four times, 
And then there was the Daily Mail version uh-huh. that was copied three times. Mm-hmm. And there was some common details. Well, basically everything in the BBC version was found in all of them. And the longer tabloid version had all of these extra details. And was looking at it and was like, okay, so there's really two stories here. And the one with almost no information is the only one found in any kind of reputable source. But it really sucked at trying to validate that that information. There was only two actual reports. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and if you go further than that, there's probably only one report, and mm-hmm. that will be on the Newswire, probably in the Press Association or the Associated Press or, or Reuters or similar, uh, that the BBC and the Daily Mail will both pull from. Uh, but the BBC would have pulled out the bits that uh, they didn't think were would pass the sort of substantiation. But they wouldn't yeah. have gone much – often they won't go much further than trimming down the press release that they get or trimming down the, uh, the, the, the Newswire kind of stub piece that they get uh, rather than sort of filling in the blanks. And this is the problem, really, I think, with um, – the huge dominance of the newswire in the in, in the in the news, um, because if you look at what a, a press agency is meant to do, or if you look at what a news agency is meant to do, um, they're supposed to have you know reporters kind of everywhere. Uh, then those reporters will you know, turn up to Robert Mugabe's election in Zimbabwe and uh, and write about what what happened, and then it's just cheaper than the BBC and the Daily Mail and the Times and the Telegraph and you know the Guardian all sending people to Zimbabwe. So they'll just subscribe to the newswire, get this initial report, and from there they'll kind of make a story. But the difficulty is if you look what the remit of a news agency is or a press agency is, they're there to report accuracy, uh, or accurately rather. They're Mm -hmm. not there to report truth. And it sounds like a really technical distinction, but it has real-world implications. So if you think about that kind of Robert Mugabe acceptance speech of a, a renouncement of his, uh, his re-election, which I know what happened last year. Mm. If, for example, he says in that speech, I am the greatest president that any African country's ever seen. I've done nothing but good for my people. Um, a news agency <laughs> reporter would be there to say, this is where he said it. This is when he said it. This is how many people turned up. And these are the words he used. And then you give that to a journalist, a journalist and they're meant to add, this is why he's lying. You know, you meant to add the context that takes what happened, the the accurate report of what happened, and adds context to make it into a truth, into a true. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, when journalists are just taking stuff that's on the newswire and then not not checking it, not adding stuff to it, they're just regurgitating it. We're just losing that uh, that uh, need to put truth into it. And even the BBC used to. I think they probably change it now, but they used to have a there's an internal memo went around that said if it's on the press association, uh, consider it golden copy. You know, don't need to change it, don't need to check it. It's there job to check it you just put it out there because wow. in, an, in an age of online news um it's better to be first and wrong than last and right you know Ooh. speed trumps accuracy in many ways especially maybe not so much with the bbc but certainly when it comes to things like the daily mill uh that the, the clickbait is for the for the advertising traffic um right. you want to be the place where they read the story whether that the details are all fully right or not less important than your where they're reading those details mm-hmm yeah, we got burned on one of those. Well, kind of burned. Got some some flack <laughs> for reporting inaccurate details in a story because the one I came across was an early one that was just basically going off of claims that individuals was making. Mm-hmm. And then you had mm-hmm. the later stories that were actually drawing from from court records. And if it's something someone's filing in in court, they're going to be a lot more careful of making sure it's actually factual. And so those later stories were far more accurate far more truthful uh but when you try to report early yeah you're going to get a lot more crap 
Yeah, and, and and by the time those later stories comes out, it's not news anymore. Mm-hmm. You because know, the, the court reports have come you know a, a little while afterwards, and by that point, do you want to really go back and say, oh, you know, this thing that happened when we talked about it at the time? Well, here's an update on it. So you, those things don't make the same kind of headlines unless it's a you know a major major case. And obviously, we're seeing this at the moment with um, the quite uh, gruesomely vulturistic coverage of the Oscar Pistorius trial. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's remarkable, I think, this this coverage. I, 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 and I guess it's kind of the international version of the OJ trial. Uh, I'm not quite sure, oh. but there was an uh, there was a a program I saw. I didn't watch it, but I saw that it was on uh, last night on like some nowhere channel or, or way down the dial, you know, way down the the TV guard as ITV4 or something like that, which was a half hour update on the Oscar Pistorius trial. It was like the trial of the century, the trial everyone's talking about it. Get the latest, and it wasn't news. It was on an entertainment program. I thought this is just a remarkable position to be in. I've never, uh, we've never, we didn't have an OJ trial uh, for mm-hmm. us to go on. But uh, yeah, it's just uh, bizarre the, the the level of kind of vultures circling around that thing. Yeah, we've had quite a few of those horrible trials like that. Yeah, uh, OJ. Who are the the two brothers um, that killed their parents? Oh, oh Mendez man. brothers, I think. Yes. Uh, 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 yeah. I thought you said the Jonas Brothers there. No, no, no. Wow, those guys <laughs> went dark. I mean, they really. I, to, I, mean, I know, I know. All those Disney kids kind of kick off the shackles of their Disney childhood, but uh, they went a little too far, if you ask me. Yeah, there was the there was OJ, and then the Ramses mm. uh, accused of killing their daughter, and then you have the Mendez brothers who killed their parents, and I should say it was were accused Lyle, of killing their parents. Lyle and Eric. Yeah, yeah. horrible but, case. And I think all three of those were in the nineties. Yeah, maybe. Well, <laughs> yeah. There's, there's no chance that we're gonna get away from this. Uh, <laughs> it, we just need to like uh, pen in one of our square states and make it a jail. <laughs> apparently, because jails are such a big business, and yeah, we need yeah. to te- televise it and give them weapons, just like you know, just any of those horrible Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. I was yeah. thinking Running Man. Yes, yes. So long as like, uh, we can't get Richard Dawson anymore. That's too bad. <laughs> so we have a guy who makes a break for freedom early on and his head blows up because of a collar around his neck. Just right. like, Chico! No! <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, horrible, horrible. Uh, my goodness. So I, I know you got it. You kind of got to run because, well, it's late and all that. But have you got anything to plug? Uh, oh God! Well, what have, give, what have I got your, to plug? Yeah, I know you're kind of the podcast horror. Give us the rundown from the incredulous <laughs> on. Well, yeah. So I, I guess my, my podcasting uh, has kind of trimmed down slightly. Uh, there was a time when I'd be on sort of three or a four shows, and it was just an unsustainable amount. But Skeptics with a K. You can, if you go to MerseysideSkeptics dot uk, you'll find all our podcasts there. So we have Skeptics with a K, which is the uh, kind of look at the news kind of skepticy show that uh, we've talked about a little bit. That's myself mm-hmm. and, and Mike Hall and, and Colin, um, and that's that's kind of uh, it's a lot of fun. That's kind of the mainstay show. Uh, there's Be Reasonable, which you can find at the same address where each month we're looking at uh, a different type of pseudoscience, a different proponent of it. Um, and then there's Incredulous, which is our kind of comedy panel show, which I sporadically appear on, but uh, we get some pretty good guests on that. And I know the next episode of that should be out pretty soon. Uh, so, yeah, so you can check all those out at uh, skeptics.org.uk. Hmm. It's too late to uh, to invite you all to uh, buy a ticket to QED and come along because I think by the time this uh, show goes out, that will uh, pretty much have uh, been closed now. But uh, QED is our, <laughs> our massive uh, UK uh, science and skepticism conference that we run with the Greater Manchester Skeptic Society every year. That's in Manchester in a frighteningly short number of days. I think it's about three weeks away. 
which is terrifying now that I really think about it. But it'll be excellent, so it's fine. <laughs> that, that won't be scary in the slightest. So that's going to be really, really great. Um, and other than that, I mean, there'll be plenty of stuff that I'm looking to, that I'll be, I'll be, you know, talking, uh, to people about with, uh, uh, the, the projects that we're looking to work on with the Good Thinking Society. So, uh, I'm looking forward to, to being able to talk about those, uh, in the, in the near future too. Badass. This is what, third year of QED? Uh, it's, is it third? It might even be fourth, you know. Fourth? Okay. I think it was 2011, 12, 13. Yeah, this is the fourth year, and this is the, the biggest year we've had yet. We've got more than 500 Fuck. people coming, which is pretty, pretty cool. Uh, we have to move to a brand new venue, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's exciting. We've got some really, really cool stuff lined up, and we always have a Dalek there as well. So that's always good news. <laughs> a full-sized Dalek. I believe this year it'll be a full-sized motorized Dalek, but quite what nice. that means, I don't know. I don't know if it's ride on, ride in, remote control. I don't know. I've just been promised a motor in it this year. Is it still Mike, Mike's <laughs> friend's Dalek? It is still, yeah, it's Joe. He, he makes them regularly. Yeah. So this is his latest, uh, his latest model off his, his uh, personal production line. So, uh, yeah, pretty excited to see what, uh, what he does at that one. Nice. Awesome. Well, in a few months time, you might just be eating some more s'mores. So yeah, <laughs> make, true, make yeah. sure that, that Katie passes them along. <laughs> I'll be sure to. All right. Alrighty. Marsh, thank you very much for joining us. It's Cheers, been a blast, Cheers. man. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of Atheist Nomads. You can find us online at www.atheistnomads.com. Contact us at contact at atheistnomads.com or leave us a voicemail message at 541-203-0666. You can also like us on Facebook or leave us a review on iTunes, Zoom, or wherever else you find the podcast. Until next time, this has been the Atheist Nomads. Canadian, really? Yeah. Really? Two episodes ago. Oh, oh yeah. Okay, okay. Sadoff. <laughs> Hi, Sadoff. <laughs> uh, yeah, Toronto's in Canada, in case you didn't know. <laughs> fuck. I thought that was just America North. What the fuck? <laughs> All right. Oh, shit. Uh, well, Marsh, what's a bell yeah. end? <laughs> uh, Bellend is a a uh, a comic uh, insult, uh, largely frequent, largely used frequently in the uh, the north of England to uh, denote the end of the penis, the the bell, as it were. So right. a bellend is the the very tip of a penis, right? A knobhead. All right, a knobhead, exactly. But it's just, it's an even more comic, uh, and therefore uh, user friendly way of saying knobhead. I think I really enjoy yes, bellend yes. as an insult. Mm. Yes, yes, okay. <laughs> I've, I've been. Is wondering that not one this. that's made it over to America? That's not one that uh, no. one of our kind of cross-cultural pollinations that one hasn't that seed hasn't landed no nope. i will be happy to propagate that one <laughs> i think you ought to i think you should take it as uh, your your responsibility right right <laughs> much appreciated thank you mystery oh. solved feels so much better now <laughs> oh wow yeah.